Hello darlings, and welcome back to the second season of Past Loves, the weekly history podcast that explores affection, infatuation and attachment across time to bring you the lighter side of history and a touch of romance to daily life. It's very exciting to be back! With the second season of the podcast, just in time for Saul to return to school and, and work after the summer, which I hope you've been able to enjoy. If you listened to the teaser last week, you'll know that for this season of the podcast, I have cast my net even further to try to bring you the very best love stories from history. So I think we're spanning four centuries and four continents. Really, it is just very, very exciting, and I am so pleased to be back here with you. Over August, I have been connecting with some of you over on Instagram, at Past Loves Podcast, which has been an utter delight, and at the moment I am running a giveaway with the History Press over there as well, so listen to the end for more details about that. And then, of course, I've been talking to some incredible people from the world of heritage and academia, and today I am talking to Ruby Lal, an acclaimed historian of India and professor of South Asian history at Emory University. Ruby was an utter joy to talk to, and she is so clearly passionate about the couple we are going to discuss today the early 17th century co-sovereigns of the Mughal Empire, Nur Shahan and Jahangir. Honestly, Ruby's face lights up talking, particularly about Nur Shahan, and I think by the end of this episode, you'll completely understand why. Actually, she has written an evocative biography of Nur Shahan called Empress, the Astonishing Reign of Nur Shahan. So Nur Jahan was a Persian noble who boldly redefined the role of the royal wife. Told in a distinctly narrative way which echoes the importance of the stories, tales and legends that have crafted our understanding of this empress and emperor, Empress by Ruby for the first time brings to the public the leadership and sovereignty of Nur Jahan as co-sovereign with her husband, Jahangir, and shows that she was the only woman ruler among the great Mughals of India. The book won the 2018 Georgia Author of the Year Award in Biography and was also finalist in history for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. It really is a wonderful piece of work, and I was so grateful to Ruby for talking to me about the relationship between Nur Jahan and Jahangir, a couple who ruled side by side. Welcome Ruby and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here Holly, thank you. So when you were researching your book I know you spoke to quite a few people and they were able to tell you the date that Nur Jahan was born and the date that she got married. And I thought, even though we're trying to escape those confines with this story of their love, we should probably start at the very beginning. She was born in 1577. Who were her parents? What was life like for them at that time? Uh, Holly, in fact, I think that's a great question because we should really open up these dates. The way in which you said that I talked to a lot of people because I did that because I was quite interested to know what the public uh, knew or thought it knew. 
Uh, and so therefore it really just involved these two dates, which is the moment of her birth and the moment of her marriage. So 1577 is the moment she comes from an aristocratic uh, family in Safavid, Persia, which is modern day Iran. And her father was, you know, he was in a very important position at the court of Shah Tahmas, who was the ruling emperor at the time. Uh, and a lot of things happened in the late 1570s. Uh, namely, there was a lot of disagreement in Persia around how to be, how to live, conflict between Shias and Sunnis, but also uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. It's not clear, but some sources suggest that Noor's father, a man called Qayasbek, was in some debt, and his father had died and was not able to help him, etc., so one way or another, the end result was that he decided to leave Iran and head for India, which was called Hindustan at that time. And the ruler was uh, Akbar the Great. And it was a liberated atmosphere. It was an atmosphere of welcome where people from all over the world, particularly artists, calligraphers, experts in Persian, all sorts of people found refuge. So they leave. And at this time, when they leave, his wife, Asma Begum, they had three children already, and she was pregnant with a fourth child. And they joined, typically as people did, they joined an aristocratic caravan, which means it went on for miles, but they would have, you know, a separate area where she would be taken with great honor and sanctity and that her respect would be kept all the way through. There would be attendance so on and so forth. So the caravan moves. And this is how people moved through much of history in those times, whether it was Central Asia or it was you know, Afghanistan or India or other lands in the world. They moved in caravans, huge caravans. Of course, it was dependent on who you were and therefore the caravan varied. Kings and aristocrats like Nur Jahan's fathers would go in a different caravan. And traders always went through. I mean, these are also slices of the silk route that we are talking about. So there was very robust trade. And ordinary people quite often joined these caravans. Sufis joined them. Preachers joined them. Jesuit priests traveled with caravans. So it's a medley of really interesting folk that are, that are <laughs> going together. So they reach just the outskirts of Kandahar, which is modern-day Afghanistan. And this was a very important area, which was the borderline between, let's say, uh, Hindustan on the one hand and Persia on the other hand, and then okay. to the north. And just outside Kandahar, just before, in fact, they reached outside Kandahar, the caravan had been attacked. And a lot of their goods and things had been stolen. So they were really in these deprived conditions. So as they just head outside Kandahar, her mother Asmat goes into labor and gives birth to Nur Jahan. At that point, who they name Mihirun Nisa, which literally means uh, women of the sun, S-U-N. Mm. Obviously, by all accounts, a beautiful infant who will have brought light to their lives. So that is the moment of the birth. I particularly love a couple of the stories that surround her birth because I think they are starting to show this, or like they attempt to start to show this kind of blessed woman who brings a change of luck to her family. So there are three stories, but they kind of all center around a very similar theme, don't they? 
Yes, they do. Uh-huh. Uh, I call this chapter Miracle Girl, and you've you know, accurately picked up the idea here. There are three uh, storytellers. So the only thing we know about her birth that's confirmed in all the records is that she was born in Kandahar in 1577 as her destitute parents left. Uh, but over time, people were really taken by this imagery. In particular, in the early 18th century, there was a man called Khafi Khan who worked in the later Mughal courts. And he draws upon this imagery of the abandonment of the child. So uh, here's what happened according to this chronicler, which is that the parents were so destitute that at one point they just wondered how would they take care of this little baby girl that had arrived. And so the father and the mother discuss and, you know, they decide that they would just have to really leave the baby and hope for the best. So they wrap her in these beautiful piece of cloth and her father, Rayaz Beg, leaves her under a tree. But in a little while, the mother is just obviously completely distraught. And she says to her husband that this can't be. We need to bring that baby back. So one story is, one legend is that when he goes back to get the baby girl, he sees there was a huge cobra which had spread its head over the baby and was protecting the baby. And so Gayasbeg is very scared, but as soon as he goes near, the cobra just withdraws and he picks up the baby. And now there are all these symbolisms in Happy Khan's version about migration, leaving, coming together. There's another version, which is that the caravan leader really finds the baby. And the, the idea is that he kind of knows what, what has happened. Yeah. Uh, to look for the mother and, you know, gives it to Asma. So, you know, there's this whole sense in which a chronicler like Khafi Khan was working out the power of this woman because he knows the courtly tradition. Then we have this amazing man called uh, Manucci. He was a Italian quack doctor. <laughs> he was actually a very interesting man who spends over two decades in Mughal India, much wow. later on. And he works as an artillery man in the army of one of the Mughal princes called Darashiko, who was Noor's nephew, the Sufi prince. And he begins to wonder about Noor Jahan's splendor. And so he writes this amazing account. Essentially, what he says is that this moment of birth uh, is almost biblical in its character mm. and in its tenor. He essentially uses the language that he was familiar with yeah. uh, out of the Christian tradition. So these are really just two examples. There are many of these examples. The point, and I think the reason why you've picked up these legends, uh, but they are, in fact, courtly, you know, documentation uh, yeah. from the 17th and 18th century. But they're very legendary in character in the sense that they really build the splendor around you know, Jahan in order to understand, in order for the writer or the thinker to understand, you know, who was this girl? Mm-hmm. This is almost a magical birth. And this is exactly how 
recorders and chroniclers wrote about the birth of the kings, there was always miracle attached to them. Of course, <laughs> it would be a disappointment if there wasn't, wouldn't it? So I also found it very interesting if we're thinking about how this woman became co-sovereign about her childhood and about her education that she received because her father became someone who was very prominent in court. So she received a very good education, didn't she? So a couple of things. Uh, They already, as I mentioned earlier on, they came from this very noble aristocratic background in Iran. Her father and hence Nur Jahan came from a family of really prominent writers, poets, Her father was a master in calligraphy writing, in the writing of the art of composing letters. I mean, these were not ordinary things. These were were well thought through. Uh, Her mother was really vivacious and a woman of great spirit. And that's how she's recorded in the documents. So this is the background. And they bring some of those traditions with them. And those traditions are then mingled in because her father, you know, gets employment in the court of Akbar the Great. And his, his rise too is stupendous. Mm-hmm. By the time people forget this, by the time Noor Jahan comes to the harem of Jahangir, whom she will marry, her father is already the vizier, which is essentially a combination of the highest finance minister and prime minister. You know, all of those things are melded together. So her own upbringing will keep all of these things into mind, aside from the kind of classic things that aristocratic girls received, such as learning the Quran, such as learning a certain code of being, a certain ethic of being, which mm-hmm. meant a lot of politeness, courtesy, civility, hunting, you know, all of these things come together. And then there are strict manuals of comportment. Uh, within the terms of which she would be raised. But it seems like this was much more a liberal family. Then you also have, because they are by this time in Pratipur Sikri in northern India, there's also the interaction with local Hindu traditions, which is really what the court was under Akbar the Great, which is why it was so liberal. There are, you know, mystical Sufi practices. And there's, there's this kind of wider landscape of, you know, mixed religions, any number of dialects, languages, many forms of being and believing. Mm. To that, I want to add her first marriage, which is glossed over very easily in most, you know, synoptic versions of Noor Jahan, the books (laughs) or even articles, which is dismissed in one line that she was married to this man of Persian origin called Ali Kuli, and she goes to live with him in Bengal. Uh, You know, those were 12 years of her marriage, out of which she has her only child, one girl, Ladli Begum. Yeah, uh, And so one of the biggest challenges for me was to think how to bring to life that life in Bengal. What was Bengal like? Bengal was the first province to come under the Mughal rule. It was the easternmost province. It was the land of the Bengal tiger. It was very green. It was an eclectic place where the play with the divine was what people were doing, right? Essentially, really critiquing any form of orthodox associations with divinity, but forming one-on-one association with God. So these were things that were going on. Um, There was a very famous, uh, you know, saint, a man called Baharam Saka, who lived there, and Nujahan went and visited him, and he talked a lot about piety, he talked about almsgiving. So these were things she was doing. Her clothing changed, she's much more, she's now in a lighter 
you know, set up. Yeah. Uh, she would wear linens. The diet changes to, you know, lighter things such as pickles and, and lime juice, <laughs> all of these things. Oh, amazing. But food and landscape. Yeah. Right? All of this part of, of our being. So, but I mentioned the Bengal years because she marries this man at age 17 and comes back. And when I was writing this chapter to my mind, I thought of Noor and she's still Mehrun Nisa at this point. Yeah. I thought of her as this, you know, beautiful young olive, newly emerging tree, but not yet a tree. But when she comes back to the haram, 12 years later, she's this tree of experiences. Yes. Her husband was away quite a lot. She's in a much smaller setup. She's in an aristocratic setup in Bengal. She's surrounded by this green that I'm mentioning. You know, it's the Wild West in America. Yeah. Right? So she's already trained in hunting. And I believe this is when she'll have finessed her hunting skills. Mm -hmm. She's known as one of the finest woman of the empire we are not talking about just some little birds which she did we're talking about killer tigers right I know it's um, amazing hearing about her life in Bengal I thought you really got that scent of like the inner steeliness coming through and you yes. could tell the kind of woman she was becoming Exactly. That's very nicely put. And then so her husband is likely to share quite a lot of the ongoings, of the, mm-hmm. you know, sentence relationships, there'd be letters from her mother, her sisters, all of these kinds of things. So she's growing and growing and she's accumulating this amazing experience. And sometimes maybe I'm jumping steps here. Perhaps you had this in mind, but people always say to me, well, you know, what was what was it about her and not those 19 other wives of the yeah. emperor later on? So shall I respond yeah. to that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, like this is a big difference so in who she was as a person. Yes, exactly. So she's carrying, you know, they are all extraordinary women too. Yeah. I mean, it's not just, and this is the problem in people's imagination that you talk about the haram and you think, Okay, well, it's a, it's a jingbang of these women, you know, who are just lounging about and, and kind of waiting for the emperor to come, and then you know they'll fulfill him and and his pleasure. And but all of that is completely inaccurate. Yeah, <laughs> that's the work I've done in my earlier academic yeah. writing. Yeah, so you know, several of those were really uh, agential, really interesting women. But I think what went in favor of Noor Jahan is really that she has this experience, aside mm-hmm. from the fact of the incredible collaboration of very significant men around. Yeah. But it was a patriarchal society. So absolutely you know. patriarchal and feudal and so therefore it's all the more incredible. So her husband, her first husband, does die. But it means that she ends up coming to court as a widow and obviously at this point she has the potential to meet Jahangir and there are lots of stories about how they do meet there are stories about the fact that they met earlier in their lives so do you think you could possibly distill all of the different options that there are as to how they did meet? Absolutely so she comes in 16 or 7, 8 something like that and three years later she gets married 
So two sets of things. First of all, there's one very famous story, and there are many versions of this story that can be found from virtually the 19th century onwards. And the story was essentially that one day uh, Jahangir, the emperor, who was called Prince Salim at that time, yeah. was going to the bath. And on the way, when he was going to the bath, he had two prized pigeons in his hands. And on the way, he comes across this really gorgeous woman who was standing there looking at the flowers and the swan. And he looks at her and he says, you know, I'm going to the bath. Do you mind holding these pigeons for me? Uh, and I'll take them when I'm back. And so she says, uh, yes, I'll keep them. So she takes the pigeons. When he comes back, he says that he sees that there's only one pigeon in her hand. And he says, uh, where's my pigeon? And, he, and, and so she says, well, it flew away. And he says, how did that happen? So she extends a second hand with the second in which she's holding the second pigeon, releases a grip and lets the pigeon fly. And she says like this. So he loses, you know, he loses his heart to her, uh, you know, her criticism and to her character and to her, you know, obviously bravery. Yeah. Um, and so this pigeon story uh, gets repeated over and over and over again. And this is really imprinted in people's minds to distill this legend. Uh, I didn't want to, first of all, do away with the legends in my book. I think it's very important to take on legends seriously because through legends, people are actually making sense of this amazing woman, yeah. right? What was, what was so beautiful about her? What was, and by beauty, we, we don't only mean looks. But it's also the character, the, the witty character, the charming character, the brilliance of the mind, you know, all of those kinds. of. So the likelihood is because she was the daughter of Kayas Bey, aristocratic families every now and then went to the palace. So mm -hmm. the likelihood is that we may have met her. There is a very famous legend with a very different name, which I didn't bring in this book. An Englishman in the early few years of the 17th century, around 1604, 1605, a man called William Finch for the first time refers this. He says there was a woman called Anarkali, literally meaning pomegranate colonel, who Salim was so much in love with, but his father, Akbar the Great, refused that marriage uh, because it was already promised to somebody else. And, you know, there have been any number of films that have been made on Anarkali. Mm -hmm. And I believe it is something to do with this, maybe, I'm not sure, unrequited love of Salim for Nurjahan. So that's your legend. As far as the historical documentation, that is the textual traditions that I work with, yeah. uh, they suggest the meeting, which is equally romantic and really very beautiful, is, you know, in the palace every year, there was a very famed market or bazaar that was held only for royalty, to which traders that included both uh, tradesmen, but also their wives of really high status brought curiosities of the world and the royalty past, the king came, the queens came, princesses, concubines. It was called the Mina Bazaar. And Noor Jahan, when she came to the Agra fort, to the harem, mm -hmm. she was put in the charge of three senior most matriarchs. One of them was the emperor's mother. So you have to think why. She was no lady in waiting. She no. was the prime minister's daughter. But for all sorts of reasons, 
and partly because when an imperial officer has been killed, it was the case that their family would be brought back to the court. So she comes to okay. the harem. So anyway, all the women come and so does Nur Jahan. And it is there that for the first time, he sees her according to records. And in May 1611, they get married. I mean, it is as romantic, but pigeons, it's just so, I don't know, the imagery of of that story. I can see why it's so memorable and people hold on to it because it's very charming, isn't it? Yes, yes. And we can, you know, I mean, if we want to extend our imagination, which we, there's no reason why we shouldn't, we can almost imagine the pigeons in the Mina Bazaar and yeah. the two. Yeah, and I, I love the way in your book that you take instances that we know happen, say like Jahangir writes about them in his memoirs. So we know that he's talking about these kinds of things. And we take those and look at the actual significance behind what that would mean and I think that when we talk about what their relationship was like together that's incredibly important but I think before we talk about them together it would be nice to talk about as he was then Prince Salim on his own what his childhood was like what his upbringing was like. So A couple of things have to be said. Essentially, a prince, the idea is that the prince is going to be a future king. Yeah. And that undergirds everything that a prince must do. His father was Akbar the Great, which was the third Mughal emperor. uh, And really the first emperor who established Mughal rule in India. Uh, He conquered pretty much northern India as far as the boundary of Deccan, which is just beyond Hyderabad today, so mm-hmm. those, those areas. Um, there was also a lot of tension around other, other provinces, so it was not a holistic uh, you know, capture. There were always center-state relations, which is why we were talking about uh, you know, Bengal. Akbar the Great had lost children before, and Salim was a much coveted son. He really makes a pledge to the Chishti Sufi saint in Sikri, a man called Muinuddin Chishti, and then he's blessed by this uh, son and is named after the saint, his mm-hmm. name is Salim Chishti. He's called Salim as a prince. And so when he's brought up within the terms of classic princely education, again, very similar to how aristocratic boys would be brought up. So hunting is very critical. You know, building strength is really very critical. Poetry, arithmetic, calligraphy, hunting. Prince Salim, of course, becomes absolutely fascinated by painting and the so-called Mughal miniature painting, which had its early formations from the time of the first emperor and that the history of that is really very, very different. Uh, the atelier really reaches the epitome under Jahangir's reign, when he becomes Jahangir. Yeah. So he's really passionate about painting. And I say this because, you know, there was no law of primogeniture in the mm-hmm. court. As the right of succession of the first prince was not automatic. He had two other brothers afterwards who then die later on. But the prince had to prove himself in many things, that is military, networking with noblemen, you know, conquests, administrative agility, and of course, the support of the Arab women, which is really very critical. Yeah. Absolutely adored. So, so there is all of this, but like 
almost all Mughal princes, he revolts against his father's authority, Akbar the Great, mm-hmm. uh, and establishes a separate court in Allahabad on the Ganges. And this is where the most experimental painting really comes to be. And eventually, Akbar forgives him and he becomes the king. But I do want to say one last thing about Jahangir. In Akbar's reign, the whole drive, I mean, he's a very experimental, very playful uh, king, his father. Mm -hmm. And he's very eclectic. He's really philosophically, he was illiterate, uh, but he was marvelously literate in that. He was philosophical. He was very experimental. You know, he had, I mean, the library was stupendous. The atelier was stupendous. The campaigns were stupendous by this time. You have administration, you have taxation, everything is all settled. But remember, he is the first man who builds the imperial walled harem. Never before had women lived in a walled harem before. And the Mughal kings had always been peripatetic. These were tented, royal, gorgeous tents that that were like tented cities. That's how royal women lived. Mm-hmm. You know, they were on the horses, they were outside. Of course, they were they were codes of civility. They were not yeah. in public, but they were not veiled. So he puts them behind the walls and he also declares them the veiled ones. These are mm-hmm. two incredible things that happen. And Salim, then Jahangir, goes against exactly these kinds of policies and becomes one of the most peripatetic kings. I mean, he was never in one place. There was only one time, the time when he marries Nur Jahan, that he was in Agra continuously for two years between 1611 and 1613. And starting 13, they started being on the road and never stopped. So they went from Western India, that is Malwa and Gujarat, into many, many trips to Kashmir. They loved Kashmir back down again to Agra, to southern India, to many spaces, but constantly pitching tents. And I believe coming out of the harem walls and into the open country is really what contributed to her co-sovereign. Yeah, yeah. It gives it a a possibility that it might, it's an easier transition, isn't it? And for, into moving into a place of equality. So Jahangir becomes the emperor in 1605. And he marries 19 women. So what was it like for her to come into this space with all of these different wives? What was her experience? Because she was a widow, had a child. It must have been a real change from her previous life in Bengal. Exactly. Exactly right. A very, very different lifestyle, you know, uh, just physically from a mansion to a large harem, right? Mm. It's not only 20 wives, but also their own particular establishments. These wives didn't live together. They had their own troop of attendants and servants and people who looked after them from morning to night, the princes. And so it's it's a very different setup. And I think it is that setup she begins to understand from the queen mothers and the empress dowager and so on and so forth. And so she begins to find, I think after her marriage, the interesting thing is she begins, and before then, she begins to find her own person while being in the harem. So one of the things she does, amazingly after her marriage, and this is this is recorded, to the women who looked after her, her attendants and companions and so on, 
there's this man, uh, his name is Farid Bhakari, and he wrote this incredible compendium. It's very extensive biographies of all Mughal noblemen, about 375 people. There's only mm-hmm. one woman he writes about, and that's Nur Jahan. And this, what I mentioned, comes from that incredible document. And he says, so she had these women that ranged roughly between late 30s to about 70 who were around her. So she gives them the choice. She says to them, to the younger ones and to, to all of them, that you can go out of the harem. Either I can help you look for husbands for you or you can leave and find yourself, you know, companions. Now we in the 21st century will think, well, what kind of a choice is this? Yeah. <laughs> right? But think about the 1610s, um, you know, for a, for a woman to have the liberty to go out to have the possibility of a different choice, which I believe in, in inverted commas because the language of feminism doesn't exist at that time. Yeah. But I think it's a very compassionate act for want of a better word. Then she gave dowries because marriage is what defined most women in that world, the world mm-hmm. over. So she gives dowries to 500 poor girls. And then she begins to design this, uh, this gorgeous dress it's called Noor Maheli. So when she marries Jahangir, he renames her as Noor Mehel, meaning light of the palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she re- so she designs this clothing, which is still sold in the Fort Bazaar outside Agra, the Noor Maheli, the dress. So it's a gorgeous dress for very, very insignificant sum. So these are some of the acts, you know, she was early on beginning to do, but then slowly, obviously, participating in discussions with her father, with Jahangir, her stepson, Shah Jahan, the oldest prince, mm-hmm. who was married to her niece, you know, as a great collaborator. And so what I did in this book is to begin to chart her ascent slowly to show not just that, yes, coins were issued in, in, in her name, but what did that mean? Mm-hmm. When was that taking place? What was the scene? What was she doing? What is the significance of issuing a, a coin? Or I said Southern India was only just coming into the imagination of the Mughals as a possible extension of imperial territory. So Prince Khuram, Shah Jahan, he was called Prince Khuram, he goes to the south, but before then he also goes to Mewar in, in Rajasthan. And the news of his earliest victories come to Noor Jahan. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the Smithsonian, and this painting is included in the book, we have a painting that complements the scene of Noor Jahan at the head when the news is being brought that he had gathered these victories. And the way the painting is styled, it's just so evocative of who's in power with the emperor and the empress. And then the prince, slightly smaller than Mm -hmm. the two of them, orally speaking, is sitting at the abid, etc. So things like this uh, begin to come together and slowly... Uh, by 1616, you know, he declares her uh, Noor Jahan, light of the world. And they're in Malwa at this time. And he goes, the emperor goes to her father's house and says, I'm going to be doing this. And the public proclamation has been made. But he had begun calling her Noor Jahan prior to this declaration already. Yeah, and you're so special, isn't it? Yes, it's very special because he himself, when he ascends the throne, he calls himself Nuruddin Muhammad Pacha Ghazi. Nuruddin meaning light, Nur meaning light. Yeah. Nur al-Din, light of the faith. 
Noor Jahan, Light of the World. Now, this is not an incidental reference. It's a reference to how sovereignty was imagined yeah. um, by the idea of light. And the simplest explanation is that the king was supposed to be, or the empress was supposed to be, an embodiment of divine light, mm-hmm. which was concentrated around your forehead, which came to you through several screens from divinity. And only those that were masters of the age could see this divinity in, in the emperor or the empress. So clearly the emperor saw that divinity. In the yeah, it's so beautiful. And I think it's such a testament to their relationship because there are a lot of stories about how her rulership in particular was because of his weaknesses. But you argue very well that actually they were equal in their relationship. They were equally ruling as co-sovereigns. So there are three technical signs of sovereignty in Islamic thought. One okay. is that coins must be minted in your name. So mm-hmm. we have these coins survive in various places in India. They're also held in Berlin, also in Paris. You know, so on the one side you have uh, the name of Nur Jahan, on the other Jahangir. Uh, the second really very critical sign is, so we are talking about the formal signs at the moment. Yeah. Uh, the, the other very critical sign is issuing of imperial orders with your signature. What we have at the moment are roughly around 10 to 15 of these imperial orders. And what were these orders about? For instance, you know, protection of the rights of peasants. If somebody's land had been taken, as was in the case of one of the successors of Mujahan's treasurer, then she you know, sends an order saying it should be given back to him, or if there were you know, other so administration-related imperial orders or land-related imperial orders or taxes-related, exactly the kind of things rulership would do. Mm-hmm. Now, people knew about the imperial orders, but like the coins, they've been, uh, and I mean scholars here, they had just done what I call a bullet point history, right? She issued imperial orders. She issued, uh, you know. Yeah, casually just did them. <laughs> just, just did them, right? What did it mean? So I actually looked at the language of the imperial order and I was so struck by her signature. It says Noor Jahan, that's her name. Patsha, mm-hmm. meaning king. Begum, an honorific. Uh, and her rose petaled stamp on that imperial order, right? So there's a language in these orders. Then in Jahangir's father's time, Akbar the Great, and this practice comes from Indic traditions in India, Mm -hmm. he would bring his person onto one of the imperial balconies twice a day and people from below, you know, viewed him. It's like uh, taking into your vision gods or goddesses, Mm -hmm. right? And Nur Jahan is known to have done that. Now, that's an informal sign. That's not a sign of Islamic sovereignty. There's another really interesting sign, which we have partly talked about, and I was very struck by this, because people said to me, scholars said to me, oh, well, you know, Jahangir does not, and it's not only Jahangir, it's in many, many records. Yeah. Uh, Jahangir does not write about Noja. So I'm just uh, explaining that part. I began reading this in Persian, and I realized two things. One is, He's writing in a stream of consciousness style, which is he's not saying, you know, uh, Holly and Ruby 500 years later. You know, I'm mentioning yeah. this because it has a significance, right? 
Yeah. And then I see that he mentions this amazing moment with which my book opened, which is that Matra yes. had been, you know, challenged by a killer tiger. And then she gets on uh, the elephant, shoots this killer tiger and saves her subject. And I kept on thinking to myself, why is hunting being mentioned again and again in this stream of consciousness, almost 30 plus entries? Uh, and that's the task of an historian. I figured out that to hunt, particularly to hunt lions and tigers, was the prerogative of this author. Not everybody could do it, right? Unless mm -hmm. an emperor asked. So these were things they were doing together. They were traveling together. All the news about the campaigns was coming together. One of the most formidable acts is the quite incredible Nujahan stories in 1626. A year before Jahangir dies, and that's the end of her sovereignty also, is that they were headed towards, you know, Kabul, and on the way he gets, again, the story is very complicated, but one disaffected nobleman, mm -hmm. uh, you know, captures him and takes him into captivity for a hundred days. He, of course, neglects to take no Jahan, and she strategizes, <laughs> gets on an elephant, loses the battle. She's also captured, but from within captivity, she works with her noblemen in such a strategic and planned manner and eventually rescues her husband. Mm. The interesting thing is immediately after this in the court chronicle, a word begins to appear. It's called fitna, which means chaos. Um, and it was first used for Prophet Muhammad's dearest wife, Aisha. And from then on, fitna came to be attached to women and it was a damning word. Yeah which meant, you know, that your sexuality is a problem, your acts are a problem, you are a problem. Mm -hmm. And riding on an elephant was the military feat that yeah. the clerics and all the men who by this time had been confounded, but they were not against her. Yeah. Right? But by this time, it was too much. Because <laughs> Jahangir speaks with such respect for her capacity to shoot tigers and to, to hunt in, in general. And I think maybe we should talk about the portrait of her loading a musket because that is very significant, isn't it? Yes, yes. Thank you for asking that question. I, I lived with that portrait forever. And, you know, uh, again, we know this portrait in that art historians have done fabulous work on this portrait. So first of all, it was built in Jahangir's atelier, mm -hmm. who was a great, not only a connoisseur of art, but a great expert of art. He could tell, according to various observers, he could just by looking at one segment of a painting, could tell who had done it and what was wrong with it, etc., etc., etc. So he was that skilled in yeah. it. According to art historians, this painting was built somewhere between 1612 and 1617. Uh, if it is built in 1612, it's so staggering. Yeah. Why it's staggering and 17 even still staggering? Yeah. So here's what happens. Um, Jahangir's atelier becomes very famous for portraiture. Mm -hmm. And his best, let's say the painter laureate of the court, a man called Abul Hassan, who was a master portraitist, he is the man and his signature is below the painting. It's a full-size classic miniature uh, portrait. Uh, she's dressed, she's wearing the jama, like, uh, you know, men wearing the jama. She has a turban, she has rubies and pearls. 
and she loads a musket. How do we know it is Noor Jahan? First of all, art historians have skillfully with art history established this. Mm -hmm. But for instance, the difference is there's a narrowness to the waist. There is, you know, a slight rise of the of the breast. And then it's a direct depiction of her hunting skill. Right? Yeah. She was the master uh, shotsman. There's one other thing I want to say. Before Jahangir's atelier, women in the Mughal atelier were painted by suggestion. That is, people were not allowed to view them, to see them. But it is suggested that Noor Jahan was the first woman to be actually viewed. In any case, she will have been viewed by her own uh, you know, actions and mm. visibility. And so Abul Hassan will have seen all these things. In my view, he breaks from all tradition to do this portrait. It was never done ever again. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, a very close, very, uh, you know, masterful senior European art history colleague said to me, apart from her, the way she's, she's depicted here, loading the musket, the act of loading the yeah. musket itself is stupendous, which means technical know-how apart yeah. from, from anything else. And he didn't think that there was anything like that out of the Northern European portly traditions that he studied. So along with this, you kind of mentioned that she starts to, in the stories, get this nasty woman sign being a bit um, cunning that she utilises, particularly Jahangir's alcoholism and opium addiction to her own advantage. But I think, I mean, you argue in the book that yes, you know, yes, he drank alcohol and yes, he had opium, but he was still emperor. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about how they functioned as a couple because art and architecture and fashion were very important for them as a couple. That's right. One more time, uh, one way or another, we've been talking about this because we've also been talking about Jahangir. So like with Noor Jahan, you know, the dismissal still in the form of the love story only yeah. or with Jahangir, dismissal. You know, if you if you just think of him as an alcoholic, then you're dismissing him. He was, as I've been saying, he was this kind of you know, lovely, moody, philosophical, art-oriented, very savvy king. He never abdicated the throne. But he did say that, for you know, I have given the reins of sovereignty to Noor Jahan mm -hmm. So some things will be together. I imagine, so I, uh, for the first time in this book, I struggled with how to think of this you know, time and this reign by these two people. And co-sovereignty is the best description of that. Some stuff together, some separately. Deliberations, obviously, around war will be together. But there'll be you know, separate hosting, separate receptions. He was there in many, many acts of killing the tigers. You know, but if she's crafting imperial orders, obviously, she would be in her own establishment with, with clocks and, mm -hmm. and straps and so on and so forth. She would have her own even in the tented section. And again, how the tents were structured, I, I wrote quite extensively about that. And she also had her own estates. A couple of these were very massive gifts, and these were really uh, extended estates where, you know, they spent time together, they, they hunted together. Yeah, it's lovely. I also found the narrative of gardens in their lives quite interesting, how they both found this love of gardens. And, and there are a few... I think later paintings, but paintings of them together in gardens. 
Yes, again, I think very important thing to to pick up. So her famous, really beautiful garden called Ram Bagh. You know, it's like a, a pleasure pavilion. It's it's just on the banks of the Yamuna, and it's set on three levels. And the topmost levels are like a covered pavilion, mm-hmm. which uh, thanks to the archive because it's closed. It's very delicate and very intricate. I went there with the archaeological survey of India team. And the and the roofs are still you can still see great magnificence in the roofs. Uh, I mean, it's got such richness of pigment and color and mythical birds like Simugar and and so many other you know things that are just poetic but that are also mythical. Now this site is really critical. This was the site of the first garden that the first Mughal emperor Babur. Jahangir's great grandfather built, mm-hmm. right? And he was a lover, absolute lover of gardens. He just lived in gardens. And it is Babur that Jahangir looks up to because he was a poet, he was a wanderer, and he was a wonderful writer. Mm. So Jahangir Nama, his count, his diary, is like his great grandfather's Babur Nama, which is exquisite, which is, yeah. you know, which, which revels in the beauty of the landscape, the beauty of the trees, of animals, of people, of tribes, of diversity, of richness. So in a way, uh, the couple is just forming that link with another time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought in his memoirs, one of my favourite little, just it's it's so tiny, but it's such a, a little testament to their relationship was that he writes that he received care from her when he was sick that was better than any physician because of the affection and sympathy that she showed Mm. him. And I just thought that was, because as you say, he doesn't write masses about her. And I think part of that is because she was a woman and she, am I right in thinking, it was respectful not to write a lot about her, but to write Mm. that little intimate moment, I just thought Mm. was very special to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly right. Yes, it's very moving. Yes. So things, as you mentioned, take a a difficult turn. Comes sixteen twenty six when he is kidnapped. She manages to <laughs> formalize their escape, but then, as you mentioned, it starts the tipping point of the story of how their relationship is talked about. So, can you explain a little bit why that happened? So essentially, after she rescues the emperor, is really beginning of the end of their sovereignty. Yeah. he's very sick by this time. In a little while, he dies. By this time, of course, two things have happened which are pretty critical. Her daughter is married to the youngest prince. Yeah, and the stepson Kurram, future Shah Jahan, the builder of the Taj Mahal, mm-hmm. uh, feels very challenged, and he goes into rebellion and goes to the Deccan state. He's also increasingly he becomes one of the force to really wipe out New Jahan from history. Yeah, and so you know he's in rebellion. He's gone. Her brother Asaf Khan, who was a very major nobleman, was the father-in-law of the rebellious prince. Right. So all these people have now come together and. As soon as the emperor dies, they mm-hmm. all turn against her. And really, while the body is on its way from Kabul, he dies on the way. They, they just—it's like a—it's like a dual cortege that cortege that travels, one with the emperor's body and the other with the emperor's. But she was 
practically, you know, taken a prisoner. Yeah. Uh, and, then she's, and then she's let go. That's also very interesting. But I'll say two things. One is most matriarchs would go to the harem if she had decided to go to the harem of her stepson and her and her niece. She would have been welcome because she would have been, you know, tree- and forgiven for what they assumed yeah. was a problem. And then she would serve as a wise state woman and so on. It's very interesting. She does not decide to go live with them. She lives on her own. And one has to remember that she's the former sovereign, co-sovereign. She also, I'd, men- I'd mentioned landed estates and several other things and mm-hmm. other imperial property, right? She would have all of that. So she lives on her own. She begins to build his mausoleum, also designs her own. So she leads her own life. Yeah. Um, and this really essentially is what happened. She lives. I mean, this is 1627. He dies. She lives up to 1645. Now, that is one time when we have absolutely no documentation. Mm-hmm. We have to use our historical imagination to think a woman who rose repeatedly over and over again, actually, after the first husband died, you know, this girl born on the road to go back there. Yeah. Um, then strategizing, planning. She's not going to, as historians have depicted her, wear some black clothes and be seen in some kind of mourning state. She would. She would do all of that. But she would also continue to do the things yeah. that she had done, uh, namely architecture, namely her grandnieces, her niece, Muntaz. It's said that the Taj is built in her memory. So she will be watching from afar as the Taj is being built. Yeah. She'll have people come to her, report to her. Yeah. I mean, she's got that steely interior. So I don't I don't believe she descended into to nothingness either. I mean, it's it's still a relatively sad end that what happened was that her son-in-law created in in a way. He created this narrative of her being a manipulative wife and Jahangir being someone who could easily be manipulated. So your book has come to rewrite this. So what should their legacy be as a couple? I think legacy first of Nur Jahan, because it's really important to establish that because we had lost her to history for so long. Mm -hmm. Legacy as a brilliant, wise, shrewd, becoming woman, woman who took her experiences very seriously. I think of her power as heart power, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, with compassion built into it, Um, but also strong-minded and ambitious. You know, women are are looked down upon for their ambition and we want to reclaim that girl power, right? Mm. And uh, as a couple, this, you know, this delicate balance that seems to have been there uh, and great amount of respect, so kind of parallel co-domains of existence, being together, but not just simply melded into one very distinct, you know, very respectful personalities, definitely persons of their own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the perfect place to end. Thank you so much for talking to me about their love story. It's been, I love the fact that you can take the legends and they're beautiful, but the reality is so much more exciting, which is such a treat. So thank you so much. Thank you, Holly. And thank 
thank you so much for listening. I just find particularly Noor Shahan, but Shahangir as well, so fascinating. I think what Ruby has done with reading between the lines and exploring the meaning behind the pieces of evidence of their lives, like that incredible picture of Noor Shahan loading a musket, is so incredible. She really has brought their story to life again. So do be sure to pick up Ruby's book, Empress, The Astonishing Reign of Noor Shahan, which is now available on Amazon, Waterstones, and at your favourite bookshop. It really is a wonderful read, and I mean, I think you can tell that I certainly fell in love with Noor Shahan and Shahangir's story. You can also discover more information about Ruby and her work, as well as how to contact her, over on her website, rubylal.com, which I will of course leave in the show notes. But speaking of books, if you didn't know, over on my Instagram at Past Loves Podcast, I run the Past Loves Book Club, where each month we choose a book, be it a classic or a historical fiction or a non-fiction, that explores love in some way. So on the second Saturday of each month, we have a chat about the book, and I just absolutely love it. It's not a joy for me. So the next discussion is this Saturday, and we will be discussing The Mountbatten's Their Lives and Loves by Andrew Loney. And then... The September-October book is going to be a new release, Widows, Poverty, Power and Politics by Maggie Andrews and Janice Lomas, published by independent history publisher The History Press. Excitingly, at the moment, I have teamed up with The History Press over on my Instagram, at Podcast to give away a copy of the book so you could be reading along with me for the next book club. It really is an amazing prize and you have until 6pm UK time on the 15th of September to enter. Just head to the show notes and you'll find a link to the post with the very easy instructions as to how to enter as well as all of the T's and C's. A very good luck to you! Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast with Ruby, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to it now. And that helps more and more true romantics with a passion for history like ourselves to find the show. Also, if you told just one friend about the podcast, that would mean so, so much to me and I would be eternally grateful. Thank you again for listening. I can't wait to talk to you again next week when I'll be delving into a secret royal marriage. Until soon.